Hi there. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to tell you about an issue of Design Museum Magazine we're working on and how you can help. The title of the issue is The Policing Issue, How One of the Most Powerful Institutions Functions by Design, out later this spring. Help support our special issue on Kickstarter. With your support, it will feature 16 artists, designers, researchers, and writers of color paid for their contributions to this special edition of the magazine. The Policing Issue will explore the relationships between design and policing, from the physical objects currently in use by officers to the ways in which the design process perpetuates unjust practices rooted in policing, all the way to the design of the protest movement. Our campaign on Kickstarter is to raise $20,000 in support of this publication. We've learned that it is so key to go viral on Kickstarter, and we've learned the best way to do that is to raise about 30% of our total on day one. So even though our campaign launches March 1st, you can pledge now to help us raise $6,000 before the campaign really even begins. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on support our Kickstarter campaign to learn more and make your pledge. Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design, because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we are talking about how designers solve problems in our experience of being human, specifically while working. You know, Think about the stress and all the issues around burnout and how we can avoid them, how we can prevent them. Joining us today as guest co-host is Nadret Shaheen from MadPow. Nadret is a human-centered experience designer, And our special guest is Liz Posse Corthell, an experienced designer at MadPow as well. Together, they developed and researched really interesting ways to use futures thinking to prevent burnout and build resilience in us as individuals, individual humans, and for organizations overall. Before we dive into all that, some quick news from the Design Museum. We are beginning a live podcast series where each month listeners will be able to listen to the podcast as we record before the episode airs, so a live show. This is a chance for the audience to ask their questions live for our guests and be part of the edited podcast episode as well. Join us for our March live podcast recording on March 19th at 12 p.m. Eastern time. We have Kate Muse and Cliff Selbert from SEGD. We'll be talking about experiential graphic design from wayfinding to architectural interiors. There's just so many places we can go. This is a member-only event, so be sure to get your membership, which includes a subscription to Design Museum Magazine, and then reserve your ticket. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and then click on events. And with that, onto this week's topic. Today, we're gonna be chatting about how design can help solve some very human problems. Thinking about the human experience, especially in terms of like stress and work and everything we're going through. I'm excited to chat with our guest co-host this week. I'm joined by Nadret Shaheen. At MadPow, Nadret is accustomed to combining information design and psychology to answer problems in her work creatively and analytically. She has spoken widely on topics of emotional intelligence, design critique, and the future of the workplace. Nadret makes designs that are good for business and good for people. Nadret, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. I loved how involved you were at the Workplace Summit and all your <laughs> questions. So it's just so natural, I feel like, to have you on the show and, and keep chatting about this stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I sometimes get too excited and I'm like, oh, <laughs> should I should I reel it in? Should I let other people speak? And no, that's just me double checking that my excitement levels are appropriate. That's right. 
<laughs> well, and getting the most out of the experiences, which I always appreciate. Speaking of your experiences, I always love to understand, especially with your background and you're kind of combining psychology and design, just love to understand your journey into the design world and how psychology plays a role in your work. Yeah. Um, how far back should we go? Uh, <laughs> I was born on a summer day. No. I was born just past midnight, actually. That's why I'm a night owl. Nice. Um, so I actually came to design by accident. I think a lot of people fall into design and that's what happened with me. I went to business school, but I always wanted to study psychology. I applied to all liberal arts schools except the business school that gave me a scholarship. So there you go. I made <laughs> the smart choice, uh, financially speaking, and I went to the business school. So I'm a Bentley graduate. But there I studied marketing and then my two majors, my one major was marketing and then my two minors were information design and corporate communication, which is one minor. I think they've yeah, since wow. rebranded it, made it a shorter <laughs> name, um, and then psychology. Uh, so I'm technically working in my minors and not doing much of the marketing side of things. Interesting. It was my first internship actually when I was a junior in college when I went back to Turkey one summer which is where I'm from I grew up in Istanbul Turkey because my father's Turkish and my mother's American and I was interning for Digiturk which is the largest digital television provider in Turkey and I was in the new technologies department under the marketing team and essentially what I did now in retrospect was a heuristic evaluation of our website and looking back, I'm like, oh, I did my first heuristic evaluation before even having the language for it. What does that even mean for our listeners oh, sure. who don't know what that is? It's essentially making sure that you're following best practices for how someone interacts with a website or an application. Gotcha. There's cool. 10 heuristics developed by the Nielsen Norman Group, uh, published in 1990, I believe. And essentially what I was, I didn't even know those heuristics existed. <laughs> and I was kind of analyzing. Yeah, I was looking at the website and saying, well, is it easy for people to do this? Is it hard for people to do this? Why? Just asking the question that I think all good designers ask, which is why? So that's kind of how I fell into it. And then I studied a lot of like uh, consumer behavior classes. I took a lot of psychology classes. And then I ended up interning again for an e-commerce company. And they were like, ah, we need someone to put together like wireframes. Can you do that? Here's a tool. I'll teach you how to use it. And they taught me how to use Aksher, which is a prototyping tool. And I was like, this is way better than marketing. I want to do this. Yeah, so I yeah. eventually changed my title and changed my course, changed the course of my career and ended up in design. Oh, that's so cool. And it's striking me that like design is so much more than this, obviously. So, but for our listeners, don't quote me, but if you have a very simplistic definition of design might be that combination of psychology and business, right? Like mm. that's such an interesting, do you find that like having both those educations kind of in your background help you in design? Yes. Unfortunately, we still live in a capitalistic society and yes. different conversation altogether if we want to have it. But I do find that it helps me explain the value behind design in a way that will resonate with my audience, which tends to be stakeholders because I've worked at agencies my whole yeah, life. People who have psychology. To, people, <laughs> yeah, people who have brains. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So we've chatted a bit like in our prep for this around how like design can address the human experience. I'm curious, like, how your process around design addressing that human experience or human problems like what ways can it do that and what ways can it just not do that right some people think like design's going to solve everything and i know you don't agree with that statement <laughs> yes and it's it's interesting because it's a 
fairly new concept for me that design, you know, isn't going to change the world. I, I definitely up until maybe last year, uh, believed that design was more powerful than I believe it to be now. Yeah. What changed your mind? Summer 2020, <laughs> the, the riots, uh, Black Lives yes. Matter, you know, yes. getting more familiar with organizations like Creative Reaction Lab and learning about equity design. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you hear this sentiment around like, oh, well, the system's broken when talking about the American justice system. And, you know, people who have been Is activists, broken? Yeah, people who work in this sphere are like, ah, it's working exactly the way it was intended to yeah this is why it was designed this way it was and and what they say right again creating quoting creative reaction lab is that you know systems of oppression and inequity and inequality have been designed so they can be redesigned and i do believe design can help but not in the traditional way that we learn about design through like academia like stanford d school or ibm which you know talk about design as an intended outcome but Creative Reaction Lab is like, mm -mm, it's about the unintended outcomes as well that we need to be aware of. And usually as designers, we're told to own a problem space when, you know, oftentimes the problems we're solving aren't ours to own and they aren't really ours to empathize with and nor can we actually empathize with them. I think that's mm -hmm. another spiel. We could go down like, is empathy enough? It isn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious like what the, because yeah, that's where, you know, design sort of like in the traditional sense might kind of drop off. But is there a future of design? I mean, that's I, I love Creative Reaction Lab, how they're redefining this. If we can redesign design, mm. can it address all of these problems? Like designers might not be the ones creating the solutions. They might be educators. They might be helping empower other people to solve these problems. I'm curious, you know, how, how you think about that in your work. Yeah, I at the beginning of last year, I actually gave a talk around empathy and using it. You know, as designers, we think about it like, oh, empathizing with end users, but I gave a talk that talked about how, you know, we should use empathy for our colleagues and our coworkers and the people that we work with, that that's probably a better use of that because we are collectively in something together, creating and working towards something together. Oftentimes when we think about empathy in the sense of user research or design thinking, you know, it's the first step. Like first you got to empathize and put yourself in people's shoes, but you can't, right? If you don't have the lived experience that someone has of being oppressed their entire life because they're not white <laughs> like right. I am or like you are. Mm-hmm. I think about how can I remove myself as much as possible and like weaken the distinction between the designer and the person that we're designing for. Mm -hmm. I've also been getting into inclusive design because I'm on a project right now that's trying to help a large financial institution become more inclusive. So I've been reading all about like inclusive design, uh, looking at frameworks, looking at, you know, what is universal design versus inclusive design? What's the difference? When do you use what? Yeah, I think there is this like you know, change we have to make around, like you said, around em what empathy means in design and how, you know, it's not, you know, in my corporate career, it was like, yeah, you could talk to 10 people and then you had a persona and then like, okay, we know who we're designing for. And it's like, oh my gosh, like that's just not, you know, there, there probably serves some purpose in this, you know, in the capitalist elements that we talked about a little bit. But when we talk about making true impact, I think there has to be a complete change in how design attaches to a specific problems, challenges, like we, we're not the heroes that I think we often mm -hmm. bill ourselves as being, and it's going to be more about making other people the heroes, allowing them to be the heroes that they already are and just getting out of the way 
in so many, so many ways. Yes. Um, yes. That's yeah. exactly how I think about it yeah. as well. I'm curious then about, you know, we talked about some of the, yes, we're doing, there's so much going on. Tw hashtag 2020. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say hashtag 2021 as well, because it's already, whew, what a year. And people are absorbing a lot of stress. They are, you know, you hear this word a lot, burnout. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you did a project that kind of like came to some of these challenges that organizations are having. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? And then let's get into like what burnout even means. Mm, yeah. So this project, we actually were hired by a large health services organization to help them figure out how to safely bring people back into their offices, physically speaking. So this was in May. And at the time, that organization was like, yeah, we're going to come back to the office in September. So <laughs> yeah, little no. did we know, right? So we essentially came on as service designers to augment their team and say, okay, let's think about what this might look like. So we created service blueprints. We, you know, mapped user journeys just to think about like points of friction that might happen when someone's, you know, coming back to the office and they need to do all these new things that they're not used to doing. And then at some point in September, case numbers started to rise. If you can recall, you know, people were like, oh, are we going back to school? Right. What's happening here? And at that point, their CEO sent an email saying, we're no longer thinking about when we're coming back to work. We're thinking about what the future of work looks like. Mm. And mm. that's when my coworker and I were like, oh, gosh, this is a really cool opportunity to pitch a different project altogether. Let's focus on what, what the future of work could look like. And because she is a student of speculative futures, futures thinking, or future studies, all three are the same. She was like, okay, well, let's see what we could do and let's actually pitch a new project that's going to be like 10 to 12 months long to actually answer that question, what does the future of work look like? You know, mm. I think at that point we were hearing this concept about like, oh, when we go back to normal, but our conversations <laughs> led us to, and our research led us to kind of understand this idea of we're not going back to normal. The future is fundamentally different. So that's when we were like, okay, how can we implore futures thinking to make decisions today for the preferable futures of tomorrow, which is what futures thinking does. Yeah. Can you dive a little bit more into futures thinking? Because I think it's a, a concept that can really be applied to so many different things, especially in times when there's so much uncertainty, like now. So I was introduced to it through Liz Carthel, who will be joining us. So she went to school for industrial design, but then shifted into service design. And then at some point, found futures thinking was like, this is really cool. So she'd been talking about it at MadPow. I think up until the pandemic, people were like, eh, this is kind of navel gazing. Like, <laughs> is it really applicable? But one of the um, frameworks within futures thinking has, it's called a futures cone. And it shows kind of the current state where we are today out into the future in the shape of a cone that's widening. And if you look at the different cones within the cone, if you will, it shows that there's a possible future, like certain mm. futures are possible, certain futures are preferable. And then there's this one thing, this little dot on the cone that says wildcard. And these are instances or things that can happen that we do not expect and we are not prepared for. Right. When she talks about, she'll often say, you know, maybe like an alien invasion or a global <laughs> pandemic, which is what we're living in right now. Literally. So we, we're joking within MadPal right now that, oh, speculative futures is having a moment and people are more curious about this. You know, speculative futures are having is having a moment and so is inclusive design because I think it's been a little bit of a wake-up call for a lot of white people, myself included, to say, oh, the way we've been doing things hasn't been working and isn't working and we designed it this way and we are upholding these systems that continue to carry on as business as usual. 
Yeah. So we started the project with a pestle scan, which looks at different areas of like politics and economics and the environment mm. to say what's happening today in these different spheres and how might that influence the future. Mm. So we were looking for future of work and then saying economics, future of work, environment. You know, there was this big trend that came up. Some of the photos might have been real or not, but that showed, oh, look at the sky. It's completely clear because we're not traveling anymore. Right, oh, what right. could this mean? This change in how we work, what could it mean for the environment long term? So th there were some speculative articles out there written by folks that are, you know, experts in their field, experts, uh, academic experts, not living mm -hmm. experts, to talk about, well, okay, let's get a sense of what these things could be. So we formed essentially a perspective, a point of view on these different areas. And then we use that to look at and determine what our research questions might be. What right. were we actually trying to learn? What have we missed since we've gone remote? Uh, what have we gained since we've gone remote? You know, and that's what kind of led us to burnout and to think about this concept of, well, what is burnout and what is resilience and what's the relationship between the two? Because we started seeing this trend, this, this word come up over and over and over again, resilience organizational resilience, how to build resilience, how to do this, resilience, resilience. And we were like, okay, <laughs> there's something here. How do we build this? And that's when we started looking at and determining what we meant uh, by resilience, which we used a systems thinking approach to it. So we were looking at what elements of a system can t still retain its basic function and absorb essentially all the disturbance that's happening outside. Um, so we used that lens to look at the organization that we were working with and said, okay, well, what hasn't made the leap to virtual? And what we found was this layer of informal communication was what we had lost. Like, you know, when you pass someone in the hallway and you have totally. this impromptu conversation. feeling of community. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, all the research we read was those moments are serendipitous. You know, they're spontaneous. We've lost spontaneity since we've gone remote. But not only do those help individuals, that actually helps the organization too, because it strengthens ties between different parts of the organizations that might be more siloed or might not be speaking to one another. Mm -hmm. I don't know how big your organization is. I actually kind of have a sense, but if you're large yeah. enough, right, you, <laughs> you don't talk to certain people within different departments unless you have an all staff or an all hands meeting. And even in those, you're not actually collaborating and learning from each other. It's yeah. You may not even steps. know that those conversations are happening when they're so serendipitous and like undefined, but it sounds like what you found is those are crucial yes. <laughs> to the workings and they're, they're unstructured, but essential. Because mm -hmm. we can learn from how other people solve problems when we hear other people talking about things, right? If I can mm -hmm. hear my deskmate next to me, like talking about something that I thought about three weeks ago, I can be like, oh, actually, like, let me tell you how we did that. This might be helpful. But you yeah. don't get that when you're at home. That's gone. I want to learn more about the workshop, which I'm sure we will with Liz. So for now, I want to say thank you for sharing all yeah. this super interesting. Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Nadret's work, check out madpow.com. And stick around, and we'll bring Liz into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, check out our Kickstarter campaign for our latest magazine special issue. It's called The Policing Issue, How One of the Most Powerful Institutions Functions by Design, out later this spring. At the Design Museum, we're always working on projects that explore the transformative power of design, whether it's our educational programs, the Workplace Innovation Summit, our books, this magazine is no exception. We're tackling how institutions are defined by their design. With your support on Kickstarter, it will feature 16 artists, designers, researchers, and writers of color who will pay for their contributions to this special issue. 
The policing issue will explore the relationships between design and policing, from the physical objects currently in use by officers to the ways in which the design process perpetuates unjust practices rooted in policing, all the way to the design of the protest movement. Help us raise $20,000 between March 1st and March 30th to make this happen. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on our Kickstarter campaign. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Liz Posse Cortho. As experienced strategist at MadPow, Liz helps clients deliver meaningful experiences to their target audience. Liz earned her MFA in industrial design at Savannah College of Art and Design. There, she developed an empathy toolkit that allowed designers to communicate with users dealing with mental illness. Her design research helps tell what the future may look like and how we might get there. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Why don't we start, yeah, with your MFA? I'm very interested to learn about the empathy toolkit because I think it kind of plays into some of the stuff Nadrette and I were talking about at the beginning of the show. Can you tell us about the toolkit, like how it came to be? Sure. Yeah. So um, a little bit about like going into industrial design school, I really thought I wanted to be an, an industrial designer proper, um, but very quickly discovered that like products and things weren't really my passion. I was much more passionate about experiences, about services, about design research and methods. So when I started getting to designing my thesis, I was thinking about like, if I was designing my ideal project, like what I would want to get hired to do in the future. Um, how do I get focused enough on service design and research methods, but also still have some industrial design in there to, to you know, graduate, yeah, yeah. which is important. <laughs> you want to graduate. <laughs> right. So I thought of the idea of coming up with a toolkit. I was inspired by a lot of other um, artists and designers who had been working in the mental illness, mental wellness uh, area. So I ended up creating this toolkit that is um, these series of like five, I called them stones, and they were these tactile things. And there was um, the one was really light, really easy to carry. And the five was really heavy and really hard to carry. So uh, what I found when interviewing people who were experiencing mental illness, like anxiety or depression, was that they felt like they were carrying this extra weight around with them. So I really wanted a way that someone who couldn't experience that firsthand or couldn't see that on looking at another person, I wanted a way for someone to be able to tactilely carry that around with them. So if you're carrying this extra weight around with you, how do you feel at the end of the day? Do you feel more tired? Do you feel more exhausted? Do you feel more stressed? Does it feel like it was a lot? Does it feel like you need to lighten that burden? So that was really what kind of started my that was like my toolkit and how it all came together yeah i love that i love also like i mean we Andrea and i talked about again the need to change empathy but i always i think i'm always interested in how people can actually like design experiences to induce empathy like that can come in so many different ways and that seems like such a good use of design right <laughs> to bring more of that you know out for people uh that sounds like such a cool project yeah, it was something I was really inspired by, like ethnography, but I realized that ethnography really has limits because not everything's observable or understandable from someone else's perspective. So I was thinking, like, there's all these invisible experiences that we all have. So, like, how can I kind of force one of them to be tactile? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I am not um, a traditionally trained designer, so I didn't go to school for design. Uh, and, and Liz and I, obviously, we know each other and we've talked about service design and our kind of found love for it. I guess I'm curious if looking back on design school, is there anything that you wish you knew going into it? 
There definitely are a few things. I think that, you know, part of design grad school, I think my my good friend Andy put this really nicely. He said, we're all getting capital D design degrees. Like he was studying sustainability and design. I was studying industrial design. Other people are studying service design or design management. It's like, we're all getting a capital D design degree. We just have different practice areas. So I was thinking, you know, part of when you go to grad school is that you can't change your major as easily as when you're an <laughs> undergrad. As someone who changed my major in undergrad like four times, I appreciated that freedom. And in grad school, it's not that freedom E, You know, you can't, sometimes you have to like reapply to the program or do all these other things. So I really took the opportunity of realizing like industrial design isn't 100% where I want my career to be. It's really more service design. So I thought like, okay, I'm just going to make this work for me. I worked with professors who were like, these are the classes you should take. This is how you should tailor your portfolio. But also like going out on my own to be like, okay, let's talk to people in the field who have jobs that I want and figure out how to kind of (laughs) tailor my own story to get to there as well. So it requires a little bit of work. I think my advice is to really think about like what it is that you're wanting out of a graduate degree. Are you wanting career opportunities in a specific field? you know, what's the best program for you? What's the best school? What's their support services like? You know, what are some alumni and what are they up to? It's really helpful to just have that understanding. And then when you're there, it's like, you have to understand that you're both, you know, meeting your competition when you're meeting all of your new friends, but you're also (laughs) meeting all of your like future network. Half of the, you know, opportunities I've had have been through other people that I met at SCAD and met through grad school. And we all kind of have been able to help each other. So there's like an undercurrent of competition, (laughs) but it's also still like very friendly trying to help one another out as often as we possibly can. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Yeah, the whole notion of grad school and kind of like making it what you need it to be, right? Mm -hmm. And that's somewhat different than undergrad, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting. Uh, We had touched on this a bit with Nadrette in the beginning, but I wonder if you could tell us more and your thoughts around future thinking. Can you define it? Can you tell us how it's used? Love to hear more. Yeah. So futures thinking is not necessarily a method. It's more of like a mindset. There are methods you can use to apply it, but it's basically we're thinking about the future as a tool to change today. So if we're thinking about the future and where we want to be, how do we change what we're doing today to get there? So um, my interest from futures thinking, uh, speaking of changing my major lots of times in undergrad, I started out as a literature major. (laughs) Um, So I did a lot. I actually, I took all of the dystopian futures literature classes I could, and then I changed my major. (laughs) So (laughs) that is really where my fascination kind of started was, you know, reading Brave New World and Mm -hmm. 1984 and all these books about the future that paint this really dark dystopian future. Then I started, you know, getting more interested in sustainability and like thinking about how we can approach the future with optimism, which I think is, you know, crucial to any work that you're doing is to approach it with a little bit of hope and optimism. But with futures thinking, you know, we can kind of see trends that are happening today and like kind of speculate about where they might go and what that might uh, impact later on. And it's a it's a really, really cool tool, really cool mindset. Um, it's, you know, been based in academia for a really long time, but I think that the last few years have been kind of between design futures and between, you know, 
living through an apocalyptic future yeah you know that's something you may want to foresee and (laughs) right between those like i think that futures thinking is something that people are talking about more and thinking about more um i think it's also you know it's easier to think about the future sometimes than it is to think about today. (laughs) Well, and it must be so, I'm just thinking about clients or it must be so valuable, right. To like Mm -hmm. have some scenarios that are backed up by like real research, real trends in a way, like predicting the futures or possible futures as the said. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's thinking about, you know, it's kind of, this was kind of a mind blowing thought to me when thinking about the future is that there's no worst case scenario and there's no best case scenario because all of them are equally likely to happen at any given time. Like wild cards can happen. Aliens can invade the planet. Literally anything can happen. <laughs> it's just, you know, that's the core, like frustration, the core stress of, of uh, strategy work in general is like, no one really knows exactly where we're headed. But we can like see things and pick up on trends and see where we're headed in certain ways to kind of move towards the future that makes the most sense for the most amount of people. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. What's maybe a way that people shouldn't use speculative futures? Or maybe there's an example you have of someone who's maybe misused it. Does anything come to mind? So I think this is a challenging question because I think that speculative futures has a lot of roots in different industries. And one of those industries, one of like the founders of speculative futures is Shell. So, you know, oil and thinking about the future of oil refinement and like. But there goes that value, right? Like they clearly right. saw that there's like immense value in trying to understand the future. So right, maybe we should as well. Right. So Shell understands that like political ramifications of oil have like lasting iterations for generations. So it's with great power comes great responsibility, right? Fully Spider-Man quote right here. Full (laughs) Spider-Man. Like it's a, it's a tool that can be used, you know, for harm as well. Like my preferred future might not be a big corporation's preferred future. So I think that part of the danger of speculative futures is it getting into the wrong hands and the wrong powerful hands. Because it's very easy to leave entire groups of people out of preferred futures Mm -hmm. or entire populations or entire parts of the world. Um, Mm. You know, we can think about like sustainability and ecologic sustainability, which, you know, might not create the most sustainable solutions for someone living in below the poverty line. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ways that it can be used to create these futures that aren't realistic for a lot of people. So that's how I worry about it getting used. Yeah. I think that the best solution to that is for more people to be familiar with futures thinking and using these tools. Because I think with anything, with like more diversity comes more thought leadership, comes more opportunity for better solutions for more people. Mm-hmm. So, Is there ever a scenario, I and mean, maybe this is talking about a little bit the danger is like the um, self-fulfilling prophecy. The fact that like, You've defined this future and you're putting it out there. And so now your whole organization is like working towards this. And then, oh, it becomes true. Well, that's actually the goal of futures thinking <laughs> is to like come up with a good vision that everyone can rally behind. I see. The challenge is coming up with a future that's far enough away from our current state. You know, I think mm-hmm. that the difference between design thinking and futures thinking is really just a few years. You know, design thinking, we're usually thinking like a year or two out. We want product launches, we want updates, but futures thinking is more like five to 10 years. So you have to kind of define that strong vision Mm, and then get people to rally behind it. 
And I, you know, it's, it's really hard to come up with a strong vision. It's hard to come up with and voice that vision. It's, and, you know, I've been listening to Donella Meadows, um, mm. systems thinker, mm-hmm. and she gave this really great talk in the nineties about, um, visioning and how, when we're often talking about issues like world hunger, we're talking about, you know, ending hunger and getting rid of the systems that have created hunger, but instead of visioning a world without hunger, like what if we thought, what if we set our eyes to that optimistic version of it, we could picture it in our heads and it was something that was so real and so tangible. And like, that's the rallying cry that can get people to invest and like, think about that and, you know, put their money in there and their policies towards creating that future. So yeah, that's exciting. That's really cool. So the distinction there is that you don't want people to say, what could the future not look like? But what could the future look like and how do we get there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think really defining and thinking about what that vision of the future is in a way that is positive and forward thinking, because it's so it's so easy to think about an unsustainable world right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had we had a guest and he put this question out to us, which was like, name like a movie about the future where like the future is good. Right. <laughs> so true. And we were all like, um, the only one I could think of was, was Black Panther. <laughs> um, yeah. And mm-hmm. that was all like literally all I could come up with. And and he was, you know, similarly, this was uh, Matthew Ridenauer from IDEO because um, they were putting out a future vision for like the food system. And I just think, yeah, it's so critical to build that muscle of like Hollywood is certainly not putting out positive future visions. Like, Mm -mm. you know, maybe the design world, we can help kind of visualize, you know, what these more equitable, like sustainable futures could be. Right. Super interesting. And it's also, it's really interesting too with Hollywood. Like we have visions of the future that are in pop culture, most of them through Hollywood, most of them dystopian futures. Um, There aren't many utopian futures because a utopian future is by definition can't exist. It's like a perfect society. And there's no conflict. There's no plot. Right. And there's nothing to watch. (laughs) (laughs) So, and, and we also have these other, the other kind of popular visions of the future kind of come from Silicon valley of like you know the elon musks and the and the mark zuckerbergs dare who are slightly detached from realities of you know 99 percent of the world right and i think it's you know i think it's worth noting that the most uh, most of those visions most of those narratives are coming from one particular type of person which is like white men in power so i think that like bringing up black panther as like a as a alternative version of telling the future is like it's because it's kind of more afrofuturism it's looking from like the black lens and and i think that you know part of i think future thinking is if the more people that are using it the more visions of the future we have that we can rally behind that aren't dystopian and destruction only there should be a little bit of dystopia and destruction it's entertaining i like sci-fi yeah too, yeah but... that's all that's all good that's my entire reading list yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's circle back to the because i know and Nadrette was talking about how you all use systems thinking to like kind of land on this whole thing around individual resilience and you know people experiencing stress and burnout which i know then kind of came to then this workshop that you all put together so can you talk about the workshop and like what the your kind of objective was and Nidred also feel free to like jump into. 
Yeah. So we, alongside with our uh, coworker, Crystal Rome, who is really well versed in systems thinking. So we kind of designed this workshop. And uh, as Nadret had mentioned earlier, too, like we tested it on ourselves to see if it had legs first. Um, But we had this workshop where we had folks, you know, draw their mental model of the office that they worked in pre-COVID. And then draw the mental model of the office that they're working in now. And Can you actually, like, what is a mental model? Yeah. So a mental model is just kind of a mental mind map. Something that is in your brain that you can put to paper. So we had people kind of, to more, less abstractly define it, we had people kind of start off with like a blueprint. Like, draw like a basic blueprint. Don't worry about it being accurate. We're not architects. (laughs) (laughs) And draw on it where you got work done, where you recharge, where you socially connected with people, where you felt like you had autonomy, where you felt like you drew boundaries for yourself. And in the office, I think those things are quite clear. You know, where we're working, boundaries literally being doors and buildings. and Yeah, those structures have been set up over centuries right and really <laughs> decades like, at least and they yeah. haven't changed right mm-hmm. and like they're really you know expertly designed but our home offices like haven't yet <laughs> so it's harder to define those boundaries at home you know we had people that were thinking about where they recharge and where they work and where they socialize and they realized it was all in the same place because after work they would just kind of you know, flip the switch of their computer to turn it from a work computer to a life computer and then play an online game with their friends and like realizing that they're not leaving the room very often (laughs) or other people were leaving the room all the time and like infecting their whole house with work. Yeah, that's literally how they defined it. They said this this room is infected with work. Wow, It smells like work. I need to leave it. It's really powerful mm-hmm. visceral reaction. Wow. That is very, that's mm-hmm. a mental model. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the description at least. Wow. That's really, so what did folks, you know, after they had their kind of mental models, like what did, what did they do from there? So we had some opportunities to kind of discuss and in future iterations, this is what we want to focus this workshop more on is the discussion between people because it allows people that space to vent a little bit, which we all need to do from time to time, but also to like think and learn from each other. So, you know, I brought that I was really good at doing this at the time. I'm not good at doing this anymore, but I was really good at going for a walk at the end of the day to signify to my brain that I was like commuting home. It's harder when it gets dark at like 4.30. (laughs) And it's really cold. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I'll, you know, I'll like do a lap around my apartment or something. (laughs) I'll figure it out. But like, things that we can do that kind of help each other. And like, we all have these little skills that we've developed over nearly a year, 10 months now. So like, how do we learn from one another and how do we create a forum where someone else's things can be helpful for you or what I'm doing can be helpful for someone else. And, you know, thinking about how to share those opportunities between each other. Yeah. I I got to think that it was an opportunity, you know, speaking for myself, especially last year, like, there was no stepping back Mm -hmm. and like thinking about my experience. It was just like, do, do, do. You're surviving every single moment. Yeah. You're just surviving. And I think it was, you know, honestly for me, like it was like my body responded because like the ergonomics weren't there. And it was like Mm -hmm. months of just like standing at my dresser, which is like not a desk, (laughs) you know? And I just wonder if that's like a, you know, I'm just thinking of our listeners here, a piece of advice even for like their, their work from home is just like take a step back mm-hmm. and think about how you are working at home because 
no one's going to do that for you, right? It's 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 not like you're in the office yeah. and your coworker is going to be like, oh, the, the way you're sitting or wow, you're in a lot of meetings. Like no one's around you. Right. So it's really up to you to kind of like pause and be like, how how am I doing here? Like taking that snapshot for yourself. What's the next step? Like, is it, I'm thinking back to your MFA, Liz, like, is it a toolkit? Is it, is it something? Um, but how does design play a role in then preventing or reducing, you know, or let's put in a positive light, how does design play a role <laughs> in increasing resilience for individuals and therefore organizations? Yeah, so I think that part of where we kind of left off on this project and where we're hoping things are going is going from it just being an individual practice to it being a team practice or a department practice where it's not just, you know, resilience is our own responsibility, which a lot of it is. I mean, we have to build in breaks for ourselves. We can't assume anyone will do it for us. Mm -hmm. But thinking then from how we can put things in practice for a department to make it easier for somebody to be more personally resilient. So as we were working on that project, we saw some shifts in the department where they went from no more hour long meetings, everything's going to be 50 minutes or 25 minutes instead of half an hour. So there were more breaks built in through the day. I think that beyond that, like, you know, reducing meeting time is excellent. Reducing meeting load is better. <laughs> like, how do we make it so you don't have to be in 15 meetings all day? <laughs> thank you both. It was such a great conversation. And thank you, Liz, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners, you can also check out Liz's work at madpal.com and see more of the amazing work that they're doing over there. Okay, it's my favorite time of the week. It's time to share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that have impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will go first. So I love to read. I always have. It's my favorite. Uh, I'd say I typically read about, you know, like one to two books per month in a normal year. But 2020 was anything but normal. And in December, I was totally shocked and floored to realize I had read one book in all of 2020. I just I could not <laughs> believe it. And I was like, so ashamed. <laughs> um, but totally, it makes sense. There's like so much stress in the pandemic and design museum. We were working so hard to like shift our operations, but I still, I just couldn't handle it. So as someone who likes to set goals this year, I decided I'm making up for the lost reading time. And I set a goal to read 50 books in 2021 and I'm like crushing that goal. I'm moving forward. And it's just really making me appreciate the whole like Amazon Kindle book ecosystem. I love my e-reader, um, but I never really appreciate the app on my phone where like you can actually set your reading goal within the app and then like tracks your progress. And you can see like your streaks, like how many days, of course it has streaks, how many days and weeks you've read in a row, which I'm like, I'm reading every day. My biggest complaint about the eBooks though, it's like, has typically been, it's like hard to browse like the website to like find books. There's just like so much, but I found that now that I'm like intentionally using the Kindle app, that the browse, like the features for browsing and like recommendations are actually like meaningful to me. And so like, I've like got like five, 10 books in advance that I'm like, yep, yep, yep. So that's been really cool. Uh, I love, of course, I can finish a book and just boom, start the next book immediately, um, making a ton of progress. I, my my big pro tip is that I haven't stopped using social media. Everyone on this podcast knows I love social media, but I have really cut back on my doom scrolling. <laughs> 
So instead of doom scrolling, I'm reading mm. or browsing the book list to like get my next five books like teed up. So it's been great for my mental health <laughs> to be using less social media. I will say one feature I'm missing is that I love getting the samples, you know, and like trying a book out. But then like, mm. I wish you could just be like, yeah, I'm in. Here's my money. And just like start reading where you left off in the sample. But I know like they do that because Apple takes like a percentage of each sale and they want to do that. So it's pretty annoying to like finish a sample, go to the website, buy the book, download it, and then like find where I left off. So if you're listening, Amazon and Apple, just make it work. Uh, but other than that, I love the whole ecosystem from like the product to the app to the content. I still buy physical books when they're like visual and, and you know, I want to, I just bought a gardening book that's very visual and I look at it all the time. That's when I can't garden. I look at pictures of gardens. But this whole Kindle experience is really allowing me to reach my my 50 book goal and I'm really enjoying it. So that's mine. Nadret, you are up. Nice. The easy example I give for inclusive design that's always like top of mind is OXO. So they were a they're a kitchen brand. Their Good Grips line was designed for people with arthritis, right? So it's just this idea of design for people that are perhaps on the margins. But I recently learned about um, a watch that was intended for use for folks that are visually impaired. It's called an Eon. I was made aware of this by my fiance's coworker, Emma Stone, actually. Great name. What a name, right? Her name is Emma Stone. <laughs> and it, it has its dial on the outside so you can physically tell what time oh, wow. it is when you actually touch the watch which you know initially that's obviously great for someone who cannot see or is visually impaired I'm into but this. it's also great for someone who yeah. like, doesn't want to be rude and check their watch while they're talking to you cuz i I've, i actually had this moment where i think back to like okay i really want to see what time it is but i'm not looking at my computer cuz i don't want to be rude don't want them to think I'm not paying attention. I don't want to look at my watch because I don't want them to think that I'm leaving. Like, wouldn't it be really cool if I could like lean down or just reach down and feel the time it is? I, I love that that idea mm -hmm. of just using a different oh, sense brilliant. to tell time. You know, we we think of using what we've always used, which is, you know, if we can see, obviously, our eyes to tell time. But what if we didn't have to? <laughs> what if we could involve a different sense to help us tell the time? That's brilliant. I love it. Oh, it's such a good example. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for being here. It was such a cool conversation across so many different elements. And I would expect nothing less <laughs> uh, based on all our other conversations. So thank, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. That's our show. I want to thank Nadret Shaheen and Liz Posse Corthell for joining us. Thank you all for listening. That was a great conversation. We'll post links to MadPow and some of the other resources we discussed today on our episode page. Just check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, be sure to pre-order our new book, Bespoke Bodies of the Design and Crafted Prosthetic. The stories of design and humans together in this book are so incredible. The limb loss and prosthetics community were amazing to work with, and we just pulled together so many amazing stories of how design makes impact in people's lives. So if you like those topics, if you like reading about design, if you like these beautiful artifacts and just really intelligent, interesting design solutions, check out Bespoke Bodies. It's all on our website and you can pre-order the book now. You can always find the latest from Design Museum on our social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have an awesome email newsletter that comes out once a week and you can easily sign up for it on our website. 
This episode was written, edited, and produced by the amazing Amor Yates with production assistance from Ryan Flom. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave for the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere. Thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.